I'm Mike Graves, and I approve this message. <laughs> but I'm not sure I approve of this text. And maybe you feel the same way. It seems to say on the surface that all authority and leaders are somehow ordained by God. Blanket endorsement. If that were a ballot initiative, I don't think I could vote for that. That all leaders, it's been used by people on both sides down through the centuries conveniently to endorse anything that is done by those in office. And you can't argue with the Bible, they say. That's why biblical scholars have wrestled with this passage for 2,000 years and mostly in an attempt to get it to say something besides what it apparently says. And unable to twist its arm into cooperating, some other scholars have actually pitted Romans 13 next to Revelation 13. In Revelation 13, there is a beast that comes up out of the sea, which was not a very veiled image of the emperor of Rome and his invading army that was occupying the Holy Land. And so where does that leave us? Is it a matter of, well, when my candidate's in office, that's God's servant, and when yours, well, that's a beast. I mean, are Paul and John writers of the New Testament on opposite sides of the aisle? It might help that some have suggested that in Romans 13, Paul is not addressing government and politics at all, but rather how the early church was still Jews and Christians together, and what he's really addressing is for the non-Jewish folks to respect the authorities in the synagogue, the rabbis. It's not about politics, that it's about the synagogue. But regardless of your read of Romans 13 or Revelation 13, one thing is, I think, indisputable. We are a divided people. We're divided as a nation. We are divided in our Congress. Some of us are divided in our homes and many, many times in our churches. There, there are red churches and there are blue churches, but most congregations are purple. This week when I met with a group of ladies here in the church and we talked about this passage and this sermon, I was going to remind them that the word politics comes from the Greek for the word city, polis, as in a metropolis, and, and that it's the work of the people in the city. And, and then one of them wisely said, it seems more like politics comes from the word for polarized. We are divided. To be clear, the Bible is explicit when it comes to geopolitical relations. Both Testaments, Old and New, are written in response to invading nations. Old Testament with the Babylonians, New Testament with the Romans. They, they know geopolitics, but the Bible knows nothing of the partisan variety in large measure because it knows nothing of democracy. But thankfully, the New Testament does care about healing the divide. Some have suggested this is Paul's main mission when he writes his letters, to heal the divide. In that day, between Jew and Gentile, or between slave and free, or rich and poor, but he knows something about healing the divide. I don't know if you saw this study, 
but approximately 7 to 12 percent on the far left and the far right have no interest whatsoever in healing the divide. They have their views, but they have no interest of conversation across the way. But the good news is that leaves roughly 70 to 80 percent somewhere near the middle who have, yes, their own views and they're not the same, but they do want, according to all the polling, they do want for the divide to be healed. Theologians call this the via media, the middle way. Between this and that, there is the middle way, or in politics, the moderate, finding some kind of consensus in the middle way. And maybe, like me, you've heard friends as well as pundits say, it feels like there has never been a darker time in our history, that we are so polarized, it's never been this bad. And, and yes, let's face it, social media and channels where you can watch your own news, it hasn't helped. But there was this thing called the Civil War. You know? I mean, we formed two armies, men willing to die and kill for their beliefs, and they did it, over 600,000. And even ordinary folks were encouraged to snitch on their neighbors if it looked like they might just be supporting the other side, whatever side it was. And it was especially bad here in Kansas City and Lawrence because we were on the border of the war. That's why I went back and reread a book I read 15 years ago. It blew me out of the water then, and I knew it would, and I reread it. It's called April 1865 by Jay Winnick. The subtitle is The Month That Saved America. It's pretty bold, but it's really convincing. He says when the framers of the Declaration of Independence wrote it, they struck the word nation from it. Instead, they said, this is the unanimous declaration of the 13 states. The 13 United States, emphasis on states. And up to the Civil War, if you use the phrase United States, you were supposed to say United States are, not is. But that changed after April of 1865. Of course, the two biggest moments in that month were the surrender at Appomattox, and the assassination of Lincoln less than a week later. And Winnick says it was how the leaders handled this that made the difference. We hung in the balance and the world was watching. Could this thing work? When the South surrendered, there were bands of guerrillas who said, we're going to keep fighting. And Lee, who had all their respect, squashed it and said, no, we're not. Up to that point when Lee used the word the nation, he meant the South, but from that point on he used it to refer to the collective. And when Lincoln was assassinated and there were many who celebrated, Lee said, no, it should be mourned. And likewise on the other side, the North refused to imprison the Confederate soldiers for treason and instead let them return to their homes and take their horses which would give them some sense of financial security. I am not a historian, so when I think about healing the divide, I think about it through the biblical theological lens. 
There was in the ancient world, and Paul uses it here in Romans and in pretty much all of his letters, there was this thing called a vice and a virtue list. It's kind of the first century version of a Boy Scout oath. And everybody in the culture knew there were things that were right and things that were wrong, like you should love and be kind, but you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't cheat. And these were just common kinds of lists, and Paul picks up on them and uses them. But there was one thing, and this was radical. He took one item from the vice list and moved it over as a Christian virtue, humility. People thought that was a sign of weakness, and Paul saw in Jesus that humility was the very nature of God. It takes a measure of humility from the top down, from leaders to just ordinary folks. It takes a measure of humility to say, you know, I, I know what I believe. I don't, I don't know all things. I can't know all things. And it takes a measure of humility not to demonize the other side. As I thought about this message and what could bring about healing, I thought, well, this is kind of a modest proposal, just a little suggestion. And then I realized, no, there's nothing modest or little about the suggestion, but it is rooted in the very fabric of Jewish Christian worship. In the first century, long before churches met in halls like this, they met every night in homes. And you've heard me talk about this. They had dinner together and afterwards a conversation. And the dinner was a full dinner. And the point's not how many calories compared to how many calories are on this table. The point is, by eating a full meal together and spending an evening together, they actually talked to one another and got to know each other. And afterwards, over wine, they had conversations. And always on the list was politics. Instead of saying, well, we don't talk, that's what they talked about because they were the city. And they worked through their differences. And there was someone there who would be in charge, who would make sure everybody had enough to eat and drink, and that everybody's voice was heard and that things didn't get out of hand. And that was how we started. Maybe a hundred years after that, the emperor of Rome, Trajan, told the governor in a little province, modern-day Turkey, don't let them do that anymore. He didn't care if the Christians got together on Sunday morning, sang songs, okay, that's fine, but don't let them come together and eat and talk because, well, that's Jew and Gentile, male and female. You, you, don't, you want to keep that stratification. You want to keep that separation. Don't let them do that. I read about a group that after the 2016 election in the Bay Area decided they would start having dinners together, and they would intentionally invite people across the spectrum, the political spectrum, and they would openly and civilly discuss politics. A friend of mine reminded me how members of Congress, before it was so easy to fly back home to their districts, would on recess often stay in D.C., and because they were there, they'd eat together and talk. You know, we hear it all the time, in Congress there is an aisle. There is an aisle. It is an aisle that divides. In the church, we have an aisle. But it doesn't divide. 
It's the aisle that everybody comes into to come to this meal. And we don't pretend while we eat it that we don't have differences. We're not, we agree to work together toward a middle way of peace and justice. I couldn't wait to reread the book because I remembered the story at the end. It was just a little bit after Appomattox. It was a beautiful, warm Sunday morning at St. Paul's Episcopal in Richmond. And the minister, Dr. Minigrode, had given the sermon. He went to the table. He invited them to come down to receive, to kneel there at the altar. And a black man got up and came, which wasn't unusual, except normally the blacks were required to wait until all of the white people had taken communion, and then they could come forward. But this gentleman came first. The minister was so flustered, he, he didn't even know what to do. The witnesses said he just stood there. He had no clue what to do. And then a white-haired gentleman got up and came down, and people thought, well, he'll set him straight. And he kneeled beside the black man, and they received communion. And that man's name was Robert E. Lee. You know, a lot of times I end sermons with a question to kind of keep the sermon going, keep the message going, wrestle with it, but we've got enough questions. So I want to offer a prayer. It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi from the 13th century, and you've probably heard it before. But I want you to hear it and see if you can make it your prayer in the midst of this political divide. Let us pray. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.